If you want to understand what the church believes, take a close look at its heresies. We make plenty of affirmative statements about what we believe, and yet many of these statements were worked out through a process of deliberation, a process that needed believers who made space for doubt, a process that needed doubters who poked and prodded at belief. Take, for instance, the Donatist controversy of the early fourth century. Donatism is the idea that a priest must be holy absolutely without reproach in order for the sacraments they celebrate to be effective. It takes its name from Donatus, a bishop that some Christians supported in North Africa against a duly elected bishop, Cecilian. These people didn't take issue with Cecilian so much as with the person who consecrated Cecilian, Felix of Aptinga. Among these Christians who objected, Bishop Felix was considered a traitor someone who had handed over church property during the persecution of Christians under the Roman Emperor Diocletian. It's important to understand the context here. Under Emperor Diocletian, churches were ransacked and burned. Clergy who did not comply with instructions to hand over property were imprisoned, tortured, and killed. The martyrs of North Africa were held in high steam after the persecution was over. And since Bishop Felix had complied with orders to hand over church property to the state, many people saw him as a compromised person, a leader of weak character and questionable moral authority. Under their view, anyone whom Felix ordained into ministry must be similarly compromised, regardless of their qualifications. They contended that all the sacraments performed by a bad bishop did not count, be it ordination, be it baptism, be it Eucharist, be it last rites. Do you see the implications of this idea? Under their view, sacraments could not be effective when performed by a flawed person. And since Felix did not meet their standard of righteousness, they consecrated their own bishop instead someone who fit their version of holiness and virtue, and thus began several centuries in North Africa of dueling altars in every town, Christian faith communities with the same creed, same worship, same basic structure, all basically the same except for their allegiance to different bishops. There is nothing new under the sun, my friends. The story in North Africa during the fourth century bears an uncanny resemblance to the story of the church in modern times. And the story of the church today also sounds a whole lot like the story of the early church in Corinth. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, Paul says. Paul is basically saying, Chloe's people tattled on you. That there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. Each of you says, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Christ did not send me to baptize you under my name, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. We, the Christian people, are susceptible to division 
and liable to schism, prone to value personalities over substance, ideological purity over common ground, respect for difference and compromise. This is what Paul is concerned about in the first letter to the Corinthians, the factions that can form among us. He wants to quell the infighting already taking place among the faithful just a few decades after Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. From the very beginning, this has been our story. Now, whenever I talk about church history in confirmation classes, I try to make the point that there is no ideal age of the church that we can look back to. No golden age that serves as our North Star for how to get along with one another. No golden age that paints a picture for how to avoid conflict together. Paul's letters are stark evidence of that. In a community that tore down the walls that divided people in the first century, be they Greek or Jew, male or female, slave or free, conflict was always a part of the equation. This should not be surprising to anybody. When you invite people to come together across their differences, it is not a matter, matter of whether there will be conflict, but when it will come up and how it will be handled. Part of our problem, I think, is that we tend to think of conflict as a bad thing. And who can blame us? We are afraid of how often conflict has gotten in the way of our relationships with those we love. We are afraid of entrenched interests and irresolvable differences. But conflict is just a part of life. It is unavoidable. It is best to name it for what it is before it festers, before it becomes utterly unbearable. Now, naming the conflict, however, is no guarantee that it will be resolved amicably. And this is what we encounter in Scripture today, our tendency to pick sides and dig our heels in, our propensity to ally ourselves with the exceptional leader who best represents us, our hopes as well as our fears. It is all too human to place our hopes on an exceptional leader. It is all too human to define ourselves against those who think otherwise. In the church, however, we do not pledge allegiance to an exceptional leader. We pledge our allegiance to the body of Christ, the Christian community itself those very people whom we have often defined ourselves against, the people sitting right alongside you in the pews. And at the end of the day, our choice isn't between Cephas, the preserver of the great tradition, or Paul, the forward-thinking innovator and visionary, or Apollos, the sage who guards the middle road. The choice is between your idea of what the community should be and the community itself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it best, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Let me say that again. She who loves her dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though her personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. 
The testing ground of our faith isn't out there, my friends. The testing ground of our faith is right here at home. In the ways we welcome and make space for one another in this space, and thereby learn what it truly means to be a people drawn from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Now, allow me to return to the Donatist controversy of the fourth century for a moment. The idea that a priest must be holy without reproach for the sacraments they celebrate to be effective. The problem with this idea, mind you, isn't that clergy shouldn't be held accountable for their actions. Far from it. That's still important. The problem is the idea that a clergy person must be perfect so that God's grace may work through them. God's mercy is not inhibited by the imperfect vessels who impart it. Otherwise, we would have to rule out Paul, the terrorist turned missionary, and Peter, Christ's betrayer three times over. The grace of God is made manifest in and through broken and imperfect people, which is another way of saying that it is made manifest through people like you and like me, warts and all. Thank God for that. Let us remember our allegiance not to exceptional leaders who look and talk the part, not to our idea of what church should be, but instead to the beautiful, broken body of Christ, imperfect though it may be. And let us bring a word of hope to a broken and divided world, a world desperately in need of that witness. Amen. <laughs>